Hello, and welcome to this reading of The Raven and Other Assorted Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Narration by Calvin Lowe. In this reading, we will go through assorted works of Edgar Allan Poe in this order. The Cask of Amontillado, The Telltale Heart, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Premature Burial, The Fall of the House of Usher, the Mask of the Red Death, The Black Cat, The Devil in the Belfry, and finally, The Raven. All narrated by myself, Calvin Lowe. Enjoy. The Cask of Amontillado The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato. Although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared, he prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines he was sincere. In this respect, I did not defer from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore a motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have wronged his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. Ow, oh, he said. Amontillado, a pipe. Impossible, and in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have no doubts. Amontillado? And I must satisfy them. Amontillado? As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchesi. If any one has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me, Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. 
and yet some fools will have it with that taste. It is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will Im not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you must have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchesi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself in my arms. Putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roquelaire closely about my person, I forced him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and given one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresor. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, he said. It is farther on, said I, but observe the wide web work which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me, and looking into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nature? he asked at length. Nature, I replied. How long have you had that cough? My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with a decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as I once was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it doesn't matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchesi. Enough, he said. The cough is mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A drought of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him with the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried repose around us, and I want your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresor, I replied, were a great and numerous family. 
I forgot your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune la cecit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through the walls of piled bones with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The Nietzsche, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle along the bones. Come, we will go back when it is too late. Your cough. It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another drought of Medoc. I broke and reached him with a flagon of Degros. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not me, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I replied, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roculaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few places. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descended again, arriving at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau to grow rather than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size, Within the wall, thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use in itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination of the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said, herein the Amontillado. As for the Lucchesi, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. And in an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more and I had fettered him to the granite. On its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these 
depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said. Over the wall, you cannot help feeling the nature. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attention in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have taken before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of my masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had, in a great measure, worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was of a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes during which I might hearken to it with more satisfaction. I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bone. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and, holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess. But the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this and the clamor grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out of the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We will have a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. The Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But it is not getting late. Well, 
Will they not be waiting at the palazzo? Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, monsieur. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust the torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of bells. My heart grew sick. On account of the dampness of the catacombs, I hastened to end my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. The Tell-Tale Heart True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been. And am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the acute sense of hearing. I heard all things in heaven and on earth. I heard many things in hell. How then, am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain but once conceived it haunted me day and night. There was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me an insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madman knows nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with that caution, with that foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him, and every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, my head was well in the room. I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously. 
for the hinges creaked, you see. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber, and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he did not even dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed slightly as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened, through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the th tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening. Just as I have done, night after night, hearing the death watches on the wall, Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain, or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. 
when I had waited a very long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray like the thread of the spider shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch made when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury. As the beating a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror, yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heartbeat went on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart, and it held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited them all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, 
that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary about that. A tub had caught all. Ha <laughs> ha. When I had finished my work, it was four o'clock. Still dark as midnight, as the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I known to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent from the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search. Search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigue, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot within which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat and while I answered cheerily, they chatted about familiar things. But ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone, my headache, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling. But it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I grew now very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about my trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they did not hear? Almighty God! No! No! They heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. 
I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I thought that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks, here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. The Pit and the Pendulum I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony, and when that length unbound me, and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution. Perhaps from its association in fancy with the burr of a mill wheel. This only for a brief period, for presently I heard no more. Yet, for a while, I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration. I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I trace these words, and thin even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with the deadly location. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment. And then my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they wore the aspect of charity, and seemed white and slender angels who would save me, but then, all at once, there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit, and I felt every fiber in my frame thrill, as if I had touched the wire of a galvanic battery. While the angel forms became meaningless specters with heads of flame, and I saw that from them there would be no help. And then they stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of what sweet rest there must be in the grave. The thought came gently and stealthily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation. But just as my spirit came at length, properly, to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished, as if magically from before me. The tall candles sank into nothingness, their flames went out utterly. The blackness of darkness supervened. All sensations appeared swallowed up in a mad rushing descent of the soul into Hades. Then silence and stillness. Night were the universe. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. What of it 
there remained I will not attempt to define or even to describe. Yet, all was not lost. In the deepest slumber, no. In delirium, no. In a swoon, no. In death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost. Else there is no immortality for man. Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet in a second afterward, so frail may that web have been. We remember, not that we have dreamed, in the return to life from the swoon and there are two stages. First, that of the sense of mental or spiritual. Secondly, that of the sense of physical existence. It seems probable that if, upon reaching the memories of gulf beyond, and that gulf is what? How at least shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have termed the first stage are not, at will, recalled yet, after a long interval, do they not come unbidden, while we marvel whence they come? He who has never swooned is not he who finds strange palaces and wildly familiar faces in coals that glow. Is not he who beholds floating in mid-air the sad visions that the many may not view? Is not he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower? Is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention? Amid frequent and thoughtful endeavors to remember, amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed, there have been moments when I have dreamed of success. There have been brief very brief periods when I have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reason of a later epoch assures me could have had reference only to that condition of seeming unconsciousness. These shadows of memory tell, indistinctly, of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down, down, still down, till a hideous dizziness oppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of descent. They also tell of a vague horror at my heart, on account of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then comes a sense of sudden motionlessness throughout all things, as if those who bore me a ghastly train had outrun in their descent the limits of the limitless and paused from the wearisomeness of their toil. After this, I call to mind flatness and dampness, and then all is madness the madness of a memory which busies itself among forbidden things. Very suddenly there came back to my soul motion and sound, the tumultuous motion of the heart, and, in my ears, the sound of its beating. Then a pause in which all is blank, then again sound and motion and touch, a tingling sensation pervading my frame. Then the mere consciousness of existence, without thought, a condition which lasted long, then very suddenly thought, and shuddering terror, and earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state. Then a strong desire to lapse into insensibility, then a rushing revival of soul and a successful effort to move, and now a full memory of the trial, of the judges, of the sable draperies, of the sentence, of the sickness, of the swoon. 
then entire forgetfulness of all that followed, of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me vaguely to recall. So far, I have not opened my eyes. I felt that I lay upon my back unbound. I reached out my hand and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard. There, I suffered to remain for many minutes, while I strove to imagine where and what I could be. I longed yet, yet dared not employ my vision. I dreaded the first glance at objects around me. It was not that I feared to look upon things horrible, but that I grew aghast lest there should be something or nothing to see. At length, with a wild desperation at heart, I quickly unclosed my eyes. My worst thoughts then were confirmed. The blackness of eternal night encompassed me. I struggled for breath. The intensity of the darkness seemed to oppress and stifle me. The atmosphere was intolerably close. I still lay quietly and made an effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitorial proceedings and attempted from that point to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed and it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose I was actually dead. Such a supposition notwithstanding what we read in fiction is altogether inconsistent with real existence. But wherein, what state was I? The condemned to death, I knew, perished usually at the auto de fa, and of one these had been held on very night of the day of my trial. Had I been remanded to my dungeon to await this next sacrifice, which would not take place for many months? This I at once saw could not be. Victims had been in immediate demand, moreover my dungeon, as well as the all-condemned cells at Toledo, had stone floors and light was not altogether excluded. A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood in torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering I at once started to my feet, trembling convulsively in every fiber. I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all directions. I felt nothing, yet dreaded to move a step, lest I should be impeded by the walls of a tomb. Perspiration burst from every pore and stood in cold, big beads upon my forehead. The agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I cautiously moved forward, with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets. In the hope of catching some faint ray of light, I proceeded for many paces, but still all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not, at least, the most hideous of fates. And now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, there came thronging upon my recollection a thousand vague rumors of the horrors of Toledo. Of the dungeons there had been strange things narrated, fables, I had always deemed them but yet strange, and too ghastly to repeat, save in a whisper. Was I left to perish of starvation in this subterranean world of darkness? Or what fate, perhaps even more fearful, awaited me? That the result would be death, and a death of more than customary bitterness, I knew too well the character of my judges to doubt. 
The mode and the hour were all that occupied or distracted me. My outstretched hands at length encountered some solid obstruction. It was a wall, seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I followed it up, stepping with all the careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. This process, however, afforded me no means of ascertaining the dimensions of my dungeon, as I might make its circuit and return to the point whence I set out without being aware of the fact. So perfectly uniform seemed the wall, I therefore sought the knife which had been in my pocket when led into the inquisitorial chamber, but it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of coarse serge. I had thought of forcing the blade in some minute crevice of the masonry so as to identify my point of departure. The difficulty, nevertheless, was but trivial. Although in the disorder of my fancy, it seemed at first insuperable. I tore a part of the hem from the robe and placed the fragment at full length and at right angles to the wall. In groping my way around the prison, I could not fail to encounter this rag upon completing the circuit. So, at least I thought, but I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon or upon my own weakness. The ground was moist and slippery. I staggered onward for some time, when I stumbled and fell. My excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate, and sleep soon overtook me as I lay. Upon awakening and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a loaf and a pitcher with water. I was too exhausted to reflect upon this circumstance, but ate and drank with avidity. Shortly afterward, I resumed my tour around the prison, with which much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge. Upon the period when I fell, I had counted fifty-two paces, and upon resuming my walk, I had counted 48 more. When I arrived at the rag, there were in all then a hundred paces, and admitting two paces to the yard, I presumed the dungeon to be fifty yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the wall, and thus I could form no guess at the shape of the vault, for vault I could not help suppose it to be. I had little object, certainly no hope. In these researches, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them. Quitting the wall, I resolved to cross the area of the enclosure. At first, I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. At length, however, I took courage, and did not hesitate to step firmly, endeavoring to cross in as direct a line as possible. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner, when the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my fingers. I stepped on it and fell violently on my face. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterward, and while I lay still prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time, my forehead seemed bathed in the clamor vapor, and 
The peculiar smell of decayed fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm and shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment and let it fall into the abyss. For many seconds, I hearkened to its reverberations as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent. At length, there was a sullen plunge into water, succeeded by loud echoes. At the same moment, there came a sound resembling the quick opening and the rapid closing of a door overhead. While a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom, and as it suddenly faded, I saw clearly the doom which had been prepared for me and congratulated myself upon the timely accident by which I had escaped. Another step before my fall, and the world had seen me no more. And the death, just avoided, was of that very character which I had regarded as fabulous and frivolous in the tales respecting the Inquisition. To the victims of its tyranny, there was the choice of death with its direct physical agonies, or death with its most hideous moral horrors. I had been reserved for the latter. By long suffering, my nerves had been unstrung, until I trembled at the sound of my own voice, and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me. Shaking in every limb, I groped my way back to the wall, resolving there to perish rather than risk the terrors of the wells, of which my imagination now pictured many and various positions about the dungeon. In other conditions of my mind, I might have courage to end my misery at once by a plunge into one of these abysses. But now I was the veriest of cowards. Neither could I forget that I had read of those pits, that the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. Agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours, but at length I again slumbered. Upon arousing, I found by my side, as before, a loaf and a pitcher of water. A burning thirst consumed me, and I emptied the vessel in a draft. It must have been drugged, for scarcely had I drunk before I became irresistibly drowsy. A deep sleep fell upon me, a sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, of course, I know not, but when, once again, I unclosed my eyes, the objects were around me were visible. By a wild sulfurous luster, the origin of which I could not at first determine, I was enabled to see the extent and aspect of the prison. In its size, I had been greatly mistaken. The whole circuit of its walls did not exceed twenty-five yards. For some minutes this fact occasioned me a world of vain trouble. Vain, indeed. For what could be of less importance under the terrible circumstances which enveloped me than the mere dimensions of my dungeon? But my soul took a wild interest in trifles, and I busied myself in endeavors to account for the error I had committed in my measurement. The truth at length flashed upon me. In my first attempt at exploration I had counted fifty-two paces, up to the period when I fell. I must then have been within a pace or two of the fragment of surge. In fact, I had nearly performed the circuit of the vault. I then slept, and upon awakening I must have returned upon my steps, thus supposing the circuit nearly doubled what it actually was. 
My confusion of mind prevented me from observing that I began my tour with the wall to the left, and it ended with the wall to the right. I had been deceived, too, in respect to the shape of the enclosure. In feeling my way, I had found many angles and thus deduced an idea of great irregularity. So potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from lethargy or sleep. The angles were simply those of a few slight depressions or niches at odd intervals. The general shape of the prison was square. What I had taken for masonry seemed now to be iron or some other metal in huge plates, whose sutures and joints occasioned the depression. The entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed in all the hideous and repulsive devices to which the charnel superstition of the monks has given rise. The figures of fiends and aspects of menace, with skeleton forms and other more really fearful images, overspread and disfigured the walls. I observed that the outlines of these monstrosities were sufficiently distinct, but that the colors seemed faded and blurred as if from the effects of a damp atmosphere. I now noticed the floor, too, which was of stone. In the center yawned the circular pit from those jaws I had escaped, but it was the only one in the dungeon. All this I saw distinctly and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. I now lay upon my back, and at full length on a species of low framework of wood. To this, I was securely bound by a long strap resembling a surcingle. It passed in many convolutions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm to such an extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen dish which lay by my side on the floor. I saw, to my horror, that the pitcher had been removed. I say, to my horror, for I was consumed with intolerable thirst. This thirst appeared to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some thirty or forty feet overhead and constructed much like the side walls. In one of its panels a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time, as he is commonly represented, save that, in lieu of a scythe. He held what, at a casual glance, I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward, the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief and, of course, slow. I watched it for a few minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. Wearied at length while observing its dull movement, I turned my eyes upon the other objects in the cell. A slight noise attracted my notice, and looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the well, which lay just within view to my right. Even then, while I gazed, they came up in troops, hurriedly, with ravenous eyes, allured by the scent of the meat. From this, it required much effort and attention to scare them away. It might have been half an hour, 
perhaps even an hour, for I could take an imperfect note of time before I again cast my eyes upward. What I then saw confounded me and amazed me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As a natural consequence, its velocity was also much greater. But what mainly disturbed me was the idea that had perceptibly descended. I now observed, with what horror it is needless to say, that its nether extremity was formed of a crescent of glittering steel, about a foot in length from horn to horn. The horns upward, and the under edge evidently as keen as that of a razor. Like a razor also, it seemed massy and heavy, tapering from the edge into a solid and broad structure above. It was appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the whole hissed as it swung through the air. I could no longer doubt the doom prepared me for my monkish ingenuity and torture. My cognizance of the pit had become known to the inquisitorial agents. The pit, whose horrors had been destined for so bold a recusant of myself. The pit, typical of hell and regarded by rumor as the ultima fuel of all their punishments. The plunge into this pit I had avoided by the merest of accidents. I knew that surprise, or entrapment into torment, formed an important portion of all the grotesquerie of these dungeon deaths. Having failed to fall, it was no part of the demon's plan to hurl me into the abyss, and thus, there being no alternative, a different and a milder destruction awaited me. Milder, I half smiled in my agony as I thought of the application of such a term. What boosts it tell the long, long hours of horror more than mortal, during which I counted the rushing vibrations of the steel, inch by inch, line by line, with a descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages. Down, and still down it came, days passed. It might have been that many days passed, where it swept so closely over me as to fan me with its acritic breath. The odor of the sharp steel forced itself into my nostrils. I prayed. I wearied heaven with my prayer for its more speedy descent. I grew frantically mad and struggled to force myself upward against the sweep of the fearful scimitar. And then I fell suddenly calm and lay smiling at the glittering death as a child at some rare bauble. There was another interval of utter insensibility. It was brief for upon again lapsing into life, there had been no perceptible de descent in the pendulum. But it might have been long, for I knew there were demons who took note of my swoon, and who could have arrested the vibration at pleasure. Upon my recovery, too, I felt very, oh, inexpressibly, sick and weak, as if through long inanition, even amid the agonies of that period, human nature craved food. With painful effort, I outstretched my left arm as far as my bonds permitted and took possession of the small remnant which had been spared by the rats. As I put a portion of it within my lips, there rushed to my mind a half-formed thought of joy, of hope. Yet what business did I have with hope? It was, as I say, a half-formed thought. 
Man has many such, which are never completed. I felt that it was of joy, of hope, but felt also that it had perished in its formation. In vain, I struggled to perfect, to regain it. Long-suffering had nearly annihilated all my ordinary powers of mind. I was an imbecile, an idiot. The vibration of the pendulum was at right angles to my length. I saw that the crescent was designed across the region of my heart. It would fray the surge of my robe. It would return and repeat its operations, again and again. Notwithstanding its terrifically wide sweep, some thirty feet or more, and the hissing vigor of its descent, sufficient to sunder these very walls of iron, still the fraying of my robe would be all that, for several minutes, it would accomplish. And at this thought I paused. I dared not go farther than this reflection. I dwelt upon it with the pertinacity of attention. As if in so dwelling, I could arrest here the descent of the steel. I forced myself to ponder upon the sound of the crescent as it should pass across the garment. Upon the peculiar thrilling sensation which the friction of cloth produces on the nerves, I pondered upon all this frivolity until my teeth were on edge. Down, steadily down it crept. I took a frenzied pleasure in contrasting its downward with its lateral velocity. To the right, to the left, far and wide, with the shriek of a damned spirit, to my heart with the stealthy pace of the tiger. I alternately laughed and howled as the one or the other idea grew predominant. Down, certainly relentlessly down. It vibrated within three inches of my bosom. I struggled violently, furiously to free my left arm. This was free only from the elbow to the hand. I could reach the ladder from the platter beside me my mouth with great effort, but no farther. Could I have broken the fastenings above the elbow? I would have seized and attempted to arrest the pendulum. I might as well have attempted to arrest an avalanche. Down, still unceasingly, still inevitably down. I gasped and struggled at each vibration. I shrunk convulsively at every sweep. My eyes followed its outward and upward whirls with the eagerness of the most unmeaning despair. They closed themselves spasmodically at the descent, although death would have been a relief. Oh, how unspeakable. Still, I quivered in every nerve to think how slight a sinking of the machinery would precipitate that keen, glistening axe upon my bosom. It was hope that prompted the nerve to quiver, the frame to shrink. It was hope the hope that triumphs on the rack, that whispers to the death condemned even in the dungeons of the Inquisition. I saw that some ten or twelve vibrations would bring the steel in actual contact with my robe, and with this observation there suddenly came over my spirit all the keen, collected calmness of despair. For the first time during many hours, or perhaps days, I thought, it now occurred to me that the bandage, or Sir Single, which enveloped me was unique. It was tied by no separate cord, 
the first stroke of the razor-like crescent at any portion of the band would detach it so that it might be unwound from my person by means of my left hand. But now how fearful, in that case, the proximity of the steel. The result of the slightest struggle is deadly. Was it likely, moreover, that the minions of the torturer had not foreseen and provided for this possibility? Was it probable that the bandage crossed my bosom in the track of the pendulum? Dreading to find my faint, and, as it seemed, my last hope frustrated, I so far elevated my head to obtain a distinct view of my breast. The surcingle enveloped my limbs and body close in all directions, save in the path of the destroying crescent. Scarcely had I dropped my head back into its original position when there flashed upon my mind what I cannot better describe than as the informed half of that idea of deliverance to which I have previously alluded, and of which a moiety only floated indeterminately from my brain when I raised food to my burning lips. The whole thought was now present, feeble, scarcely sane, scarcely definite, but still entire. I proceeded at once with the nervous energy of despair to attempt its execution. For many hours, the immediate vicinity of the low framework upon which I lay had been literally swarming with rats. They were wild, bold, ravenous. Their red eyes glaring upon me as if they waited but for motionlessness on my part to make me their prey. To what food, I thought, have they been accustomed to the well? They had devoured, in spite of all my efforts to prevent them, all but a small remnant of the contents of the dish, I had fallen into a habitual seesaw, or a wave of the hand about the platter, and, at length, the unconscious uniformity of the movement deprived of it of effect. In their veracity, the vermin frequently fastened their sharp fangs into my fingers, with the particles of the oily and spicy vind, which now remained, I thoroughly rubbed the bandage wherever I could reach it. Then, raising my hand from the floor, I lay breathlessly still. At first, the ravenous animals were startled and terrified at the change. At the cessation of movement, they shrank alarmingly back. Many sought the well, but this was only for a moment. I had not counted in vain upon their veracity. Observing that I remained without motion, one or two of the boldest leaped upon the framework and smelt at the surcingle. This seemed the signal for a general rush. Forth from the well they hurried in fresh troops. They clung to the wood, they overran it, and leaped in hundreds upon by person. The measured movement of the pendulum disturbed them not at all. Avoiding its strokes, they busied themselves with the anointed bandage. They pressed, they swarmed upon me in every accumulating heaps. They writhed upon my throat, their cold lips sought my own. I was half stifled by their thronging pressure, disgust for which the world has no name, swelled my bosom and chilled with a heavy clamminess my heart. Yet, one minute, and I felt that the struggle would be over. Plainly, I perceived the loosening of the bandage. I knew that in more than one place, it must already be served. With a more than human resolution, I lay still.
nor had I erred in my calculations, nor had I endured in vain. I at length felt that I was free. The surcingle hung in ribbons from my body, but the stroke of the pendulum already pressed upon my bosom. It had divided the surge of the robe. It had cut through the linen beneath. Twice again it swung, and a sharp sense of pain shot through every nerve. But the moment of escape had arrived. At a wave of my hand, my deliverers hurried tumultuously away. With a steady movement, cautious, sidelong, shrinking and slow, I slid from the embrace of the bandage and beyond the reach of the scimitar. For the moment, at least, I was free. Free, and in the grasp of the Inquisition. I had scarcely stepped from my wooden bed of horror upon the stone floor of the prison when the motion of the hellish machine ceased and I beheld it drawn up by some invisible force through the ceiling. This was a lesson which I took desperately to heart. My every motion was undoubtedly watched. Free, I had but escaped death in one form of agony, to be delivered unto the worse than death in some other. With that thought, I rolled my eyes nervously around in the barriers of iron that hemmed me in. Something unusual, some change which at first I could not appreciate distinctly, it was obvious, had taken place in the apartment. For many minutes of a dreamy and trembling abstraction, I busied myself in vain, unconnected conjecture. During this period, I became aware for the first time of the origin of the sulfurous light which illuminated the cell. It proceeded from a fissure about half an inch in width, extending entirely around the prison at the base of the walls, which thus appeared and were completely separated from the floor. I endeavored, but of course in vain, to look through the aperture. As I arose from the attempt, the mystery of the alteration in the chamber broke at once upon my understanding. I have observed that, Although the outlines of the figures upon the walls were sufficiently distinct, yet the colors seemed blurred and indefinite. These colors had now assumed, and were momentarily assuming, a startling and most intense brilliancy that gave to the spectral and fiendish portraits an aspect that might have thrilled even firmer nerves than my own. Demon eyes, of a wild and ghastly vivacity, glared upon me in a thousand directions. There none had been visible before, and gleamed with the lurid luster of a fire that I could not force my imagination to regard as unreal. Unreal. Even while I breathed, there came to my nostrils the breath of the vapor of heated iron. A suffocating odor pervaded the prison. A deeper glow settled each moment in the eyes that glared at my agonies. A richer tint of crimson diffused itself over the pictured horrors of blood. I panted. I gasped for breath. There could be no doubt of the design of my tormentors. Oh, most unrelenting. Oh, most demoniac of men. I shrank from the glowing metal to the center of the cell. Amid the thought of the fiery destruction that impeded, the idea of the coolness of the well came over my soul like balm. I rushed to its deadly brink. I threw my straining vision below. The glare from the enkindled roof illuminated its inmost recesses. Yet, for a wild moment, did my spirit refuse to comprehend the meaning of what I saw. At length it forced. 
It wrestled its way into my soul. It burned itself upon my shuddering reason. Oh, for a voice to speak. Oh, horror. Oh, any horror but this. With a shriek, I rushed from the margin and buried my face in my hands, weeping bitterly. The heat rapidly increased, and once again I looked up shuddering as with a fit of the ague. There had been a second change in the cell, and now the change was obviously in the form. As before, it was in vain that I, at first, endeavored to appreciate or understand what was taking place. But not long was I left in doubt. The inquisitorial vengeance had been hurried to my twofold escape, and there was to be more dallying with the King of Terrors. The room had been square. I saw that two of its iron angles were now acute. Two, consequently, obtuse. The fearful difference quickly increased with a low rumbling or moaning sound. In an instant, the apartment had shifted its form into that of a lozenge, but the alteration stopped not there. I neither hoped nor desired it to stop. I could have clasped the red walls to my bosom as a garment of eternal peace. Death, I said, any death but that of the pit. Fool, I might have not known that into the pit it was the object of the burning iron to urge me. Could I resist its glow? Or, if even that, could I withstand its pressure? And now, flatter and flatter grew the lozenge, with a rapidity that left me no time for contemplation. Its center of, and of course, its greatest width came just over the yawning gulf. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me restlessly forward. At length, from my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. I felt that I tottered upon the brink. I averted my eyes. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell, fainting, into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies. The Premature Burial there are certain themes of which the interest is all-absorbing, but which are too entirely horrible for the purposes of legitimate fiction. These the mere romanticist must eschew if he does not wish to offend or disgust. They are with propriety handled only when the severity and majesty of truth sanctify and sustain them. We thrill, for example, with the most intense of pleasurable pain over the accounts of the passage of Beresina, of the earthquake of Lisbon, of the plague at London, of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, or of the stifling of the 123 prisoners in the Black Hole at Calcutta. But in these accounts it is the fact, it is the reality, it is the history which excites. 
as inventions, we should regard them with the simple abhorrence. I have mentioned some of the more prominent and august calamities on record, but in these it is the extent, not less, than the character of the calamity, which so vividly impresses the fancy. I need not remind the reader that, from long and weird catalogue of human miseries, I might have selected many individual instances for more replete with essential suffering than any of these vast generalities of disaster. The true wretchedness, indeed, the ultimate woe, is particular, not diffuse. But the ghastly extremes of agony are endured by man, the unit, and never by man, the mass. For this let us think a merciful God. To be buried while alive is, well, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality, that it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of all the apparent functions of vitality. And yet, in these which cessations are merely suspensions properly so called, they are only temporary pauses in the incomprehensible mechanism. A certain period elapses, and some unseen mysterious principle again sets in motion the magic pinions and the wizard wheels. The silver cord was not forever lost, nor the golden bowl irreparably broken. But where, meantime, was the soul? Apart, however, from the inevitable conclusion, a priori, that such causes must produce such effects, that the well-known occurrence of such cases of suspended animation must naturally give rise, now and then, to premature internments. Apart from this consideration, we have the direct testimony of medical and ordinary experience to prove that a vast number of such instruments have actually taken place. I might refer at once, if necessary, to a hundred well-authenticated instances, one of very remarkable characters, and of which the circumstances may be fresh in the memory of some of my readers. Occurred not very long ago in the neighboring city of Baltimore, where it occasioned a painful, intense, and widely extended excitement. The wife of one of the most respectable citizens, a lawyer of eminence and a member of Congress, was seized with a sudden and unaccountable illness, which completely baffled the skill of her physicians. After much suffering, she died, or was supposed to die. No one suspected, indeed, or had reason to suspect, that she was not actually dead. She presented all the ordinary appearances of death, the face assumed the usual pinched and sunken outline. The lips were of the usual marble pallor. The eyes were lustreless. There was no warmth. Pulsation had ceased. 
For three days, the body was preserved unburied, during which it had acquired a stony rigidity. The funeral, in short, was hastened on account of the rapid advance of what was supposed to be decomposition. The lady was deposited in her family vault, which, for three subsequent years, was undisturbed. At the expiration of this term, it was opened for the reception of a sarcophagus. But alas, how fearful a shock awaited the husband, who, personally, threw open the door. As its portal swung outwardly back, some white-appareled object fell rattling within his arms. It was the skeleton of his wife, in her yet unmolded shroud. A careful investigation rendered it evident that she had revived within two days after her entombment, that her struggles within the coffin had caused it to fall from a ledge or shelf to the floor, where it was so broken as to permit her escape. A lamp, which had been accidentally left full of oil within the tomb, was found empty. It might have been exhausted, however, by evaporation. On the uttermost of the steps which led down into the dread chamber was a large fragment of the coffin, with which it seemed that she had endeavored to arrest attention by striking the iron door. While thus occupied, she probably swooned, or possibly died, through sheer terror, and in failing, her shroud became entangled in some iron work which projected interiorly. Thus she remained, and thus she rotted, erect. In the year 1810, a case of living inhumation happened in France. Attended with circumstances which go far to the warrant, the assertion that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. The heroine of the story was a Mademoiselle Victorine Lafocade, a young girl of illustrious family, of wealth, and of great personal beauty. Among her numerous suitors was Julienne Bousseau, a poor literature or journalist of Paris. His talents and general amiability had recommended him to the notice of the heiress, by whom he seems to have been truly beloved. But her pride of birth decided her, finally, to reject him and to wed a Monsieur Renel, a banker and a diplomatist of some eminence. After marriage, however, this gentleman neglected and, perhaps even more positively, ill-treated her. Having passed with him some wretched years, she died. At least, her condition so closely resembled death as to deceive everyone who saw her. She was buried, not in a vault, but in an ordinary grave in the village of her nativity. Filled with despair and still inflamed by the memory of a profound attachment, the lover journeys from the capital to the remote province in which the village lies, with the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. He reaches the grave. At midnight, he unearths the coffin, opens it, and is in the act of detaching the hair when he is arrested by the unclosing of the beloved eyes. In fact, the lady had been buried alive, 
vitality had not altogether departed, and she was aroused by the caresses of her lover from the lethargy which had been mistaken for death. He bore her frantically to his lodgings in the village. He employed certain powerful restoratives suggested by no little medical training. In fine, she revived. She recognized her preserver. She remained with him until, by slow degrees, she fully recovered her original health. Her woman's heart was not adamant, and this last lesson of love sufficed to soften it. She bestowed it upon Biswo. She returned no more to her husband, but, concealing him from her resurrection, fled with her lover to America. Twenty years afterward, the two returned to France, in the persuasion that time had so greatly altered the lady's appearance that her friends would be unable to recognize her. They were mistaken, however, for at the first meeting, Monsieur Renel did actually recognize and make a claim to his wife. This claim she resisted, and a judicial tribunal sustained her in her resistance, deciding that the particular circumstances with the long lapse of years had extinguished not only equitably, but legally the authority of the husband. The chirurgical journal of Leipzig, a periodical of high authority and merit, which some American booksellers would do well to translate and republish, records in a late number a very distressing event of the character in question. An officer of Artillery, a man of gigantic stature and of robust health, being thrown from an unmanageable horse, received a very severe contusion upon the head, which rendered him insensible at once. The skull was slightly fractured, but no immediate danger was apprehended. Trepanning was accomplished successfully. He was bled, and many other of the ordinary means of relief were adopted. Gradually, however, he fell into a more and more hopeless state of stupor, and, finally, it was thought that he died. The weather was warm, and he was buried with indecent haste in one of the public cemeteries. His funeral took place on Thursday. On the Sunday following, the grounds of the cemetery were, as usual, much thronged with visitors, and about noon an intense excitement was created by the declaration of a peasant that, while sitting upon the grave of the officer, he had distinctly felt a commotion of the earth, as if occasioned by someone struggling beneath. At first little attention was paid to the man's asseverations, but his evident terror and the dogged obstinacy which he persisted in his story had a length at their natural effect upon the crowd. Spades were hurriedly procured, and the grave, which was shamefully shallow, was in a few minutes so far thrown open that the head of its occupant appeared. He was then seemingly dead, but he sat nearly erect within his coffin, the lid of which, in his furious struggles, he had partially uplifted. He was forthwith conveyed to the nearest hospital, and there pronounced to be still living. Although in asphytic condition, after some hours he revived, recognized individuals of his acquaintance, and in broken sentences spoke of his agonies in the grave. From what he related, it was clear that he must have been conscious of life for more than an hour, 
while inhumane before lapsing into insensibility. The grave was carelessly and loosely filled with an exceedingly porous soil, and thus some air was necessarily admitted. He heard the footsteps of the crowd overhead, and endeavored to make himself heard in turn. It was the tumult within the grounds of the cemetery, he said, which appeared to awaken him from a deep sleep. But no sooner was he awoke than he became fully aware of the awful horrors of his position. This patient, it is recorded, was doing well and seemed to be in fair way of ultimate recovery, but fell victim to the quakery of a medical experiment. The galvanic battery was applied, and he suddenly expired in one of those ecstatic paroxysms, which occasionally it superinduces. The mention of the galvanic battery nevertheless recalls to my memory a well-known and very extraordinary case in point, where its action proved the means of restoring to animation a young attorney of London, who had been interned for two days. This occurred in 1831, and created, at the time, a very profound sensation wherever it was made the subject of converse. The patient, Mr. Edward Stapleton, had died apparently of typhus fever. Accompanied with some anomalous symptoms which had excited the curiosity of his medical attendants, upon his seeming death his friends were requested to sanction a post-mortem examination, but declined to permit it. As often happens when such refusals were made, the practitioners resolved to disinter the body and dissect it at leisure in private. Arrangements were easily effected with some of the numerous court of body snatchers, with which London abounds. And upon the third night after the funeral, the supposed corpse was unearthed from a grave eight feet deep and deposited in the opening chamber of one of the private hospitals. An incision of some extent had been actually made in the abdomen, when the fresh and undecayed appearance of the subject suggested an application of the battery. One experiment succeeded another, and the customary effects supervened, with nothing to characterize them in any respect except, upon one and two occasions, a more than ordinary degree of lifelikeness in the convulsive action. It grew late. The day was about to dawn, and it was thought expedient at length to proceed at once to the dissection. A student, however, was especially desirous of testing a theory on his own, and insisted upon applying the battery to one of the pectoral muscles. A rough gash was made, and a wire hastily brought in contact, when the patient, with a hurried but quite non-convulsive movement, arose from the table, stepped into the middle of the floor, gazed about him uneasily for a few seconds, and then spoke. What he said was unintelligible, but words were uttered. The syllabification was distinct. Having spoken, he fell heavily to the floor. For some moments, all were paralyzed with awe. But the urgency of the case soon restored their presence of mind. It was seen that Mr. Stapleton was alive, although in a swoon. Upon exhibition of ether, he revived and was rapidly restored to health and to the society of his friends, from whom, however, all knowledge of his resuscitation was withheld until a relapse was no longer to be apprehended. Their wonder 
the rapturous astonishment may be conceived. The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident, nevertheless, is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no period was he altogether insensible, that, dully and confusedly, he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital. I am alive, were the uncomprehended words which, upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting room, he had endeavored, in his extremity, to utter. It was an easy matter to multiply such histories as these, but I forbear. For indeed, we have no need of such to establish the fact that premature interments, of course, occur. When we reflect how very rarely, from the nature of the case, we have it in our power to detect them, we must admit that they may frequently occur without our cognizance. Scarcely, in truth, is a graveyard ever encroached upon for any purpose, to any great extent, that skeletons are not found in postures which suggest the most fearful of suspicions. Fearful indeed the suspicion, but more fearful the doom. It may be asserted without hesitation that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress as is burial before death. The unendurable oppressions of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm. These things, with the thoughts of air and grass above, with memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed. That our hopeless portion is that of the really dead. These considerations, I say, carry into the heart, which still palpitates, a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know of nothing so agonizing upon earth. We can dream of nothing half so hideous in the realms of the nethermost hell. And thus, all narratives upon this topic have an interest profound, an interest, nevertheless, which, through the sacred awe of the topic itself, very properly and very peculiarly depends upon our conviction of the truth of the matter narrated. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge, of my own positive and personal experience. For several years, I had been subject to attacks of the singular disorder which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, in default of a more definitive title. Although both the immediate and the predisposing causes, and even the actual diagnosis of this disease are still mysterious, its obvious and apparent character is sufficiently well understood. Its variations seem to be chiefly of degree, Sometimes the patient lies, for a day only, or even for a shorter period, in a species of exaggerated lethargy. He is senseless and externally motionless, but the pulsation of the heart is still faintly perceptible. Some traces of warmth remain, a slight color lingers within the center of the cheek, and upon application of a mirror to the lips, 
we can detect a torpid, unequal, and vacillating action of the lungs. Then again, the duration of the trance is for weeks, even for months. While the closest scrutiny and the most rigorous medical tests fail to establish any material distinction between the state of the sufferer and what we conceive of absolute death. Very usually, he is saved from premature interment solely by the knowledge of his friends that he has been previously subject to catalepsy. By the consequent suspicion, excited, and above all, by the non-appearance of decay. The advances of the malady are, luckily, gradual. The first manifestations, although marked, are unequivocal. The fits grow successfully more and distinctive, and endure each for a longer term than the preceding. In this lies the principal security for inhumation. The unfortunate whose first attack should be of the extreme character, which is occasionally seen, would almost inevitably be consigned alive to the tomb. My own case differed in no particular importance from those mentioned in medical books. Sometimes, without any apparent cause, I sank, little by little, into a condition of semi-syncope, or half-swoon. And in this condition, without pain, without ability to stir, or, strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull lethargic consciousness of life and of the presence of those who surrounded my bed, I remained until the crisis of the disease restored me, suddenly, to perfect sensation. At other times I was quickly and impetuously smitten. I grew sick and numb and chilly and dizzy, and so fell prostrate at once. Then, for weeks, all was void, and black, and silent, and nothing became the universe. Total annihilation could be no more. From these latter attacks I awoke. However, with a gradation slow in proportion to the suddenness of the seizure, just as the day dawns to the friendliness and houseless beggar who roams the streets throughout the long, desolate winter night, just so tardily, just so wearily, just so cheerily came back the light of the soul to me. Apart from the tendency to trance, however, my general health appeared to be good nor could I perceive that it was at all affected by the one prevalent malady. Unless, indeed, an idiosyncrasy in my ordinary sleep may be looked upon as superinduced. Upon awakening from slumber, I could never gain, at once, thorough possession of my senses, and always remained, for many minutes, in much bewilderment and perplexity. The mental faculties in general, but the memory in especial, being in a condition of absolute abeyance. In all that I endured, there was no physical suffering but of moral distress and infinitude. My fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, and epitaphs. I was lost in the reveries of death, and the idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. The ghastly danger to which I was subjected haunted me day and night. In the former, the torture of meditation was excessive. In the latter, supreme. When the grim darkness overspread the earth, then, with every horror of thought, I shook. Shook as the quivering plumes upon the hearse. When nature could endure wakefulness no longer, 
it was with a struggle that I consented to sleep, for I shuddered to reflect that upon awakening I might find myself the tenant of a grave. And when finally I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which, with vast sable overshadowing wings, hovered predominant the one sepulchral idea. From the innumerable images of gloom which thus oppressed me in its dreams, I select for record, but a solitary vision, I was immersed in a cataplectic trance of which more than usual duration and profundity. Suddenly there came an icy hand upon my forehead, and an impatient, gibbering voice whispered to the word, Arise, within my ear. I sat erect. The darkness was total. I could not see the figure of him who had aroused me. I could call to mind neither the period at which I had fallen into the trance, nor the locality in which I then lay. While I remained motionless and busied in endeavors to collect my thought, the cold hand grasped me fiercely by the wrist, shaking it petulantly, while the gibbering voice said again, Arise! Did I not bid thee arise? And who, I demanded, art thou? I have no name in the regions which I inhabit, replied the voice mournfully. I was mortal, but am fiend. I was merciless, but am pitiful. Thou dost feel that I shudder. My teeth chatter as I speak, yet it is not with the chilliness of the night, or the night without end, but this hideousness is insufferable. How can thou tranquility sleep? I cannot rest for the cry of these great agonies. These sights are more than I can bear. Get thee up. Come with me into the outer night, and let me unfold to thee the graves. Is not this a spectacle of woe? Behold, I looked, and the unseen figure which still grasped me by the wrist had caused to be thrown open the graves of all mankind, and from each issued the faint phosphoric radiance of decay, so that I could see into the innermost recesses, and there view the shrouded bodies in their sad and solemn slumbers with the worm. But alas, the real sleepers were fewer, by many millions, than those who slumbered not at all. And there was a feeble struggling, and there was a general sad unrest, and from out the depths of the countless pits there came a melancholy rustling from the garments of the buried, and of those who seemed tranquilly to repose. I saw that a vast number had changed, in a great or less degree, the rigid and uneasy position in which they had originally been entombed. And the voice again said to me as I gazed, Is it not, oh, is it not a pitiful sight? But before I could find words to reply, the figure had ceased to grasp my wrist. The phosphoric lights expired, and the graves were closed with a sudden violence, while from out them arose a tumult of despairing cries, saying again, Is it not, O oh God, is it not a very pitiful sight? Fantasies such as these, presenting themselves at night, extended their terrific influence far into my waking hours. My nerves became thoroughly unstrung, and I fell prey to perpetual horror. I hesitated to ride, or to walk, or to indulge in any exercise, 
that could carry me from home. In fact, I no longer dared trust myself out of the immediate presence of those who were aware of my proneness to catalepsy, lest, falling into one of my usual fits, I should be buried before my real condition could be ascertained. I doubted the care, the fidelity of my dearest friends. I dreaded that, in some trance of more than customary duration, they might be prevailed upon to regard me as irrecoverable. I even went so far as to fear that, as I occasioned much trouble, they might be glad to consider any very protracted attack as sufficient excuse for getting rid of me altogether. I was, in vain, they endeavor to reassure me by the most solemn promises. I exacted the most sacred oaths that under no circumstances they would bury me until decomposition had so materially advanced as to render further preservation impossible. And even then, my mortal terrors would listen to no reason, would accept no consolation. I entered into a series of elaborate precautions. Among other things, I had the family vault so remodeled as to admit of being readily opened from within. The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light, and convenient receptacles for water and food, within immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded, and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door. With the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body would be sufficient to set it at liberty. Besides all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell, the rope of which it was designed should extend through a hole in the coffin, and so be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. But alas, what avails the vigilance against the destiny of man? Not even these well-contrived securities suffice to save from the uttermost agonies of living inhumation a wretch to these agonies foredoomed. There arrived an epoch, as often before there had arrived, in which I found myself emerging from total unconsciousness into the first feeble and indefinite sense of existence. Slowly, with a tortoise gradation, approached the faint grey dawn of the psychical day. A torpid uneasiness, an apathetic endurance of dull pain, no care, no hope, no effort. Then, after a long interval, a ringing in my ears. Then, after a lapse still longer, a prickling or tingling sensation in the extremities. Then, a seemingly eternal period of pleasurable quiescence, during which the awakening feelings are struggling into my thought. Then, a brief resinking into non-entity, then a sudden recovery. At length, the slight quivering of an eyelid, and, immediate thereupon, an electric shock of a terror, deadly and indefinite, which sends the blood into torrents from the temples to the heart. And now, the positive effort to think, and now the first endeavor to remember, and now a partial and evanescent success. And now the memory has so far regained its dominion that in some measure I am cognizant of my state. I feel that I am not waking from ordinary sleep. I recollect that I have been subject to catalepsy. And now at last, 
as if by the rush of an ocean, my shuddering spirit is overwhelmed by the one grim danger, by the one spectral and ever-prevalent idea. For some minutes after this fancy possessed me, I remained without motion. And why? I could not summon courage to move. I dared not make the effort which was to satisfy me of my fate. And yet there was something at my heart which whispered, it was sure. Despair, such as no other species of wretchedness ever calls into being. Despair alone urged me, after long irresolution, to uplift the heavy lids of my eyes. I uplifted them. It was dark. All dark. I knew that the fit was over. I knew that the crisis of my disorder had long passed. I knew that I had now fully recovered the use of my visual faculties. And yet it was dark. All dark. The intense and utter carelessness of the night had endureth forevermore. I endeavored to shriek, and my lips and my parched tongue moved convulsively together in the attempt, but no voice issued from the cavernous lungs which oppressed as if by the weight of some incumbent mountain, gasped and palpitated with the heart at every elaborate and struggling inspiration. The movement of the jaws in this effort to cry aloud showed me that they were bound up, as if in the usual with death. I felt, too, that I lay upon some hard substance, and by something similar by my sides, were also closely compressed. So far, I had not ventured to stir any of my limbs, but now I violently threw my arms, which had been lying at length, with the wrists crossed. They struck a solid wooden substance which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face. I could no longer doubt that I reposed within a coffin at last. And now, amid all my infinite miseries, came sweetly the Sherub hope, for I thought of my precautions. I writhed and made spasmodic exertions to force open the lid. It would not move. I felt my wrists for the bell rope. It was not to be found. And now, the comforter fled forever, and still sterner despair reigned triumphant. For I could not perceiving the absence of the paddings which I had so carefully prepared. And then, too, there came suddenly to my nostrils the strong, peculiar odor of moist earth. The conclusion was irresistible. I was not within the vault. I had fallen into a trance while absence from home while among strangers, when or how, I could not remember. And it was they who had buried me as a dog, nailed up in some common coffin, and thrust deep, deep and forever, into some ordinary and nameless grave. As this awful conviction forced itself thus into the innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud, and in this second endeavor I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek, or yell, of agony, resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. Hello, hello there, said a gruffy voice in reply. What's the devil is matter with you, said a second. Get out to that, said a third. What do you mean by yowling in that air kind of style? Like a catamount, said a fourth and thereupon I was seized and shaken with ceremony. For several minutes, 
by a gento of very rough-looking individuals. They did not wake me from my slumber, for as I wide awake, when I screamed, that they restored me to the full possession of my memory. This adventure occurred near Richmond in Virginia, accompanied by a friend I had preceded upon a gunning expedition some miles down the banks of the James River. Night approached and we were overtaken by a storm. The cabin of a small sloop lying at anchor in the stream and laden with garden mold afforded us the only available to shelter. We made the best of it and passed the night on board. I slept in one of the only two berths in the vessel, and the berths of a sloop of sixty or twenty tons need scarcely be described. That which I occupied had no bedding of any kind. Its extreme width was eighteen inches. The distance of its bottom from the deck overhead was precisely the same. I found it a matter of exceeding difficulty to squeeze myself in. Nevertheless, I slept soundly, and the whole of my vision, for it was of no dream and no nightmare, arise naturally from the circumstances of my position, from my ordinary bias of thought, and from the difficulty to which I have alluded of collecting my senses and especially of regaining my memory. For a long time after awaking from slumber, the men who shook me were the crew of the sloop, and some laborers engaged to unload it. From the load itself came the earthy smell. The bandage about the jaws was a silk handkerchief in which I had bound up my head in default of customary nightcap. The tortures endured, however, were indubitably quite equal for the time to those of actual sepulture. They were fearful. They were inconceivably hideous, but out of evil proceeded good, for their very excess wrought in my spirit an inevitable revulsion. My soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad. I exercised vigorously. I breathed the free air of heaven. I thought about other subjects than death. I discarded my medical books. Buchan, I burned. I read no night thoughts. No fustian about churchyards. No bugaboo tales such as this. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life. From the memorable night, I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions, and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder, of which perhaps they had been less the consequence than the cause. There are moments when, even to the sober eye of reason, the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of a hell. But the imagination of man is no carethus. To explore with impunity its every cavern, alas, the grim legion of sepulchre terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful. But, like the demons in whose company Asphrasiab made his voyage down the Oxus, they must sleep, or they will devour us. They must be suffered to slumber, or we perish. The Fall of the House of Usher During the whole of dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone, on horseback, through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but, with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, 
for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house, and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant, eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveller upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the House of Usher? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that, while beyond doubt, there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us. Still, the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify, or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. And, Acting upon this idea, I ruined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the grey sedge, and the ghastly tree stems, and the vacant and eye-like windows. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom I now proposed to myself a sojourn of some weeks, its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country, a letter from him, which, in its wildly importunate nature, had admitted to no other than a personal reply. The MS gave evidence of nervous agitation. The writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and of an earnest desire to see me, as his best, and indeed his only personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this and much more was said. It was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith what I still considered a very singular summons. Although, as boys, we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had always been excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that this very ancient family had been noted, time out of mind, for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, displaying itself through long ages in many works of exalted art and manifested of late in repeated deeds of munificent yet unobtrusive charity, as well as in a passionate devotion to the intricacies, perhaps even more than to 
the orthodox and easily recognizable beauties of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the Usher race, all time honored as it was, had put forth, at no period, any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent, and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. It was this deficiency, I considered, while running over in thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, and while speculating upon the possible influence which the one, in the long lapse of centuries, might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue and the consequent undeviating transmission from sire to son, of the patrimony with the name which had, at length, so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher. An appellation which seemed to include, in the minds of the peasantry who used it, both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment, that of looking down within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. There could be no doubt that the consciousness of the rapid increase of my superstition, for why should I not so term it, served mainly to accelerate the increase itself. Such, I have long known, is the paradoxical law of all sentiments having terror as a basis. And it might have been for this reason only that, when again I uplifted my eyes to the house itself from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, a fancy so ridiculous, indeed, that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensation which oppressed me. I had so worked upon my imagination as really to believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity. An atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the grey wall and the silent tarn. A pestilent and mystic vapour, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. Shaking off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal feature seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity, the discoloration of ages had been great. Minute fungi overspread the whole exterior, hanging in a fine tangled webwork from the eaves. Yet all this was apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. No portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the specious totality of old woodwork that which was rotted for long years in some neglected vault with no disturbance from the breath of the external air. Beyond this indication of extensive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction until it became lost in the sullen waters of the town. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant in waiting took my horse, and I entered the gothic archway of the hall. A valet, a stealthy step, then conducted me 
in silence through my dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. Much that I encountered on the way contributed, I know not how, to heighten the vague sentiments of which I have already spoken. While the objects around me, while the carvings of the ceilings, the somber tapestries of the walls, the ebon blackness of the floors, and the phantasmagoric armorial trophies which rattled as I strode, were but matters to which, or to such as which, I had been accustomed from my infancy. While I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this, I still wondered to find how unfamiliar were the fancies which ordinary images were stirring up. On one of the staircases I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation and passed on. The valet now threw open a door and ushered me into the presence of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and at so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimsoned light made their way through the trestled panes and served to render sufficiently distinct the more prominent objects around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark draperies hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow. An air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it, I at first thought, of an overdone cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennui man of the world. A glance, however, at his countenance convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and for some moments while we spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely. Man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the wan being before me with the companion of my early boyhood. Yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. A cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison. Lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surpassingly beautiful curve. A nose of a delicate Hebrew model, with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations. A finely molded chin speaking in its want of prominence, of a want of moral energy. Hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features, with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easily to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and the expression they were not wont to convey, lay so much of the change that I doubted to whom I spoke. The now ghastly pallor of the skin, and the now miraculous luster of the eye, above all things startled and even awed me. The silken hair, too, had suffered to grow all unheeded, and, as in its wild gossamer texture, it floated rather than feel about the face. 
I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity. In the manner of my friend, I was at work struck with incoherence, an inconsistency, and I soon found this arise from a series of feeble and futile struggles to overcome a habitual trepidation, an excessive nervous agitation, for something of this nature had indeed been prepared, no less by his letter, than by reminiscences of certain boyish traits, and by conclusions deduced from his particular physical confirmation and temperament. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision, when the animal spirits seemed utterly in abeyance, to that species of energetic concision, that abrupt, weighty, unheard, and hollow-sounding enunciation, that leaden, self-balanced, and perfectly modulated guttural utterance, which may be observed in the lost drunkard or the irreclaimable eater of opium during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit, of his earnest desire to see me, and of the solace he expected to afford me. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and a family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy. A mere nervous affection, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me. Although, perhaps, the terms and the general manner of the nar narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the tenses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds in those from stringed instruments which did not inspire him with horror. To an anomalous species of terror I found him a bounden slave. I shall perish, said he. I must perish in this deplorable folly. Thus, thus, and not otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the events of the future, not in myself, but in the results. I shudder at the thought of any, even the most trivial instant which may operate upon this intolerable agitation of the soul. I have indeed no abhorrence of danger, except in its absolute effect, in terror. In this unnerved, in this pitiable condition, I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. I learned, moreover, at intervals, and through broken and equivocal hints, another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence, for many years, he had never ventured forth. In regard to an influence whose supposititious force had conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated, an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had, by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit. An effect which the physique of the grey walls and turrets, and of the dim tarn into which they all looked down, had, at length, 
brought upon the morale of his existence. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus afflicted him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin. To the severe and long-continued illness, indeed to the evidently approaching disillusion, of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. Her death, he said with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so was she called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment and, without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment not unmingled with dread, and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me, as my eyes followed her retreating steps, when a door at length closed upon her. My glance sought instinctively and eagerly to the countenance of the brother, but he had buried his face in his hands, and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers through which trickled many passionate tears. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent although transient affections of a partially cataleptical character were the usual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady, and had not betaken herself finally to bed. On the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating power of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should obtain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself, and during this period I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened, as if in a dream, to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar. At last, and thus, as a closer and still closely intimate admitted me more reservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe, in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the House of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies or of the occupations in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulfurous luster over all. His long improvised dirges with will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber. From the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, and which grew touch by touch, into vagueness at which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered knowing not why, from these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me. 
I would in vain endeavor to reduce more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me at last, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions with the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe, no shadow of which I felt ever yet with the contemplation of the certainly glowing yet too concrete reveries of Fuseli. One of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend, partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly, in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and regular vault or tunnel, with low walls, smooth white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible. Yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout, and bathed the whole in ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer, with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth, in great measure, to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been, and were, in the notes as well as in the words of his wild fantasies, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations, the result of that intense mental connectedness and concentration to which I have previously alluded as observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. I was perhaps the more forcibly impressed with it, as he gave it because, in the under or mystic current of its meaning, I fancied that I perceived, and for the first time, a full consciousness of the part of Usher of tottering on his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses, which were entitled The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly, if not accurately, thus. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, rear its head. In the monarch thought's dominion, it stood there. Never seraph spread opinion, the fabric is so half there. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley, though two luminous windows saw, spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne where sitting, poor Friargene, in state his glory well befitting, the rule of realm was seen. And all that pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling 
evermore. A troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley, through the red-litten windows see, vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody, while, like a rapid, ghastly river, through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and long, but smile no more. I will remember the suggestions arising from this ballad let us into a train of thought wherein there became a manifest of opinion of Usher's which I mention not so much on account of its novelty. For other men have thought thus. As on account from the pertinacity with which he maintained it, this opinion in a general form was that of the silence of all vegetable things. But in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of organization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with grey stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones. In the order of the arrangement, as well as in that of many fungi, which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement and its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn, its evidence, the evidence of the sentience, was to be seen, he said. And I here started as he spoke, in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet important and terrible influence which for centuries had molded the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed so, no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were, as we might suppose, in strict keeping with his character of phantasm, we poured together over such works as the Beauvais et Chartreuse au Verset, the Belfigur of Machiavelli, the Heaven and the Hell of Swedenborg, the Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, the Chiromancy of Robert Flude, of Jean de Indigene, and of De la Chambre, the Journey of the Blue Distance of Tiek, and the City of the Sun of Campanella. One favorite volume was a small octavo edition of the Directorium Inquisitorium by the Dominican Emmerich de Geron, and there were passages in Pomponius Mela about the old African satires and epigeans, over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the perusal of an exceedingly rare and curious book in quarto gothic, 
the manual of a forgotten church, the Vigili Mortorium Secundum Corn Ecclesiae Maguntinae. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac when, one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated an intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final interment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical men, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded as at best but a harmless and by no means an unnatural precaution. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches have smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light. Lying at grave depth, immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment, it had been used, apparently, in remote feudal times, for the worst purposes of a donjon keep, and in later days as a place of deposit for powder, or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of long archway through which we reached it, were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been also similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hitches. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining, perhaps, my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and the sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual, in all maladies of the strictly calleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced the screwed down lid and, having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of my friend's mental disorder. His ordinary manner had vanished. His ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal, and objectless steps. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminousness of his eye had utterly gone out. 
the once occasional huskiness of his tone had heard no more, and a tremulous quaver as if of extreme terror habitually characterized his utterance. There were times indeed when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times again I was obliged to resolve all into the mere inexplicable vagaries of madness. For I beheld him gazed upon vacancy for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me, by slow yet certain degrees, the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the Lady Madeline within the donjon that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch. While the hours waned and waned away, I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavored to believe that much, if not all, of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room, of the dark and tattered draperies which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls, and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless, and irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with grasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber hearkened. I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm. At long intervals, I knew not whence, overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, uncountable yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night, and endeavored to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen, by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. I had taken but a few turns in this manner when a light step of an adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognized it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward, he rapped with a gentle touch at my door and entered, bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan. But, moreover, there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes, and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. And you have not seen it, he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. You have not then seen it, but stay, you shall. Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet. I was indeed a tempestuous, yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind. 
and the exceeding density of the clouds, which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house, did not prevent our perceiving the lifelike velocity with which they flew careening from all points against each other without passing away into the distance. I say that even their exceeding destiny did not prevent all perceiving this. Yet, we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But the undersurfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation, which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. You must not, you shall not behold this said I, shudderingly, to Usher, as I led him with a gentle violence from the window to a seat. These appearances, which bewilder you, are merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon. Or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances. I will read, and you shall listen." and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Trist of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's more in sad jest than in earnest, for, in truth, there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative prolixity, which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief. For the history of mental disorder is full of similar, similar anomalies, even in the extremeness of the folly which I should read. Could I have judged indeed by the wild, overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale. I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story where Ethelred, the hero of the Trist, having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here, it will be remembered, the words of the narrative run thus. And Ethelred, who was by nature of doughty heart, and who was now mighty withal, on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who, in sooth, was of an obstinate and maliceful turn. But, feeling the rain upon his shoulders, and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand. And now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked, and ripped, and tore all asunder. Now, that, the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood, alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence, I started, and, for a moment, paused. For it appeared to me, although I had once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me, it appeared to me that, from some very remote portion of the mansion, there came indistinctly to my ears 
what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo. But a stifled and dull one, certainly. Of the very cracking and ripping sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was, beyond doubt, the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention. For, amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements, and the ordinary commingled responses of the still increasing storm, the sound itself had nothing surely which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit. But, in the stead thereof, a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanor, and of a fiery tongue, which state in God before a palace of gold with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass with this legend written, Who entereth herein a conqueror hath been? Who slayeth the dragon, the shield he shall win. And Athelred uplifted his mace, and struck upon the head of the dragon which fell before him, and gave up his pesky breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh, and withal so piercing, that Athelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it, the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now, with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that, in this instance, I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say, a low and apparent distant, but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound. The exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural streak, as described by the romancer. Oppressed, as I certainly was, upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence, by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting, by any observation, the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although assuredly a strange alteration had during the last few minutes, taken place in his demeanour. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea, for he rocked from side to side with gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now, the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield and of the breaking of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him, and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which in sooth tarried not full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than, as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver. 
I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leaped to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur. As if unconscious of my presence, Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it? Yes, I hear it, and have heard it. Long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dare not. Oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am. I dared not. I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb said I not that my senses were acute. I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago. Yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, tonight, Athelred, <laughs> the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield, say, rather, the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison, and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to unbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footsteps on the stairs? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables, as if in the effort he were giving up his soul. Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door. As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance, there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant the ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then, Without those doors there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother and in her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion, I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly, there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued. For the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting and the blood-red moon which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure, of which I have before spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. 
there was a long tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the house of usher the mask of the red death the red death had long devastated the country no pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the best ban, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men and the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extent and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girled in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatory. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty, there was wine, all these and security there within. Without it was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you about the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. 
These windows were stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That, at the eastern extremity, was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, and the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp of candelabrum. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof, there was no light of any kind emanating from a lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood apart opposite of each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony, its pendulum swing to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand had made the surface of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note emphasis that e each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce seized their evolutions and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie and meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then after the lapse of sixty minutes which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tests of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. 
He disregarded the decor of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure, they were grotesque. There was such glare, and glitter, and piquancy, and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were aberesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers they were stalked. In fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and out, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet, and then, for a moment, all is still and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter la floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro merrily, more than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven. There are now none of the maskers who venture. For the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, where comes from the near clock of ebony and muffled peer more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in more remote gaieties of other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and then them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went willingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of a thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful, among who revealed. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disappropriation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. 
in an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters which no jests can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so in detecting the cheat, and yet all this might have been endured if not approved by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement as if mournfully to sustain its role, stopped to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang to sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It is in the blue room where the prince stood with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately steps, made a closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that unimpeded he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way interruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, mavering with rage, and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, 
when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet department, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect, motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. The Black Cat For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad I am not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I will unburtle my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted to docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly to be at the trouble of explaining the nature of the or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. 
This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusions to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than it that it happens, just now, to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew, day by day, more moody and more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition, I not only neglected, but I'll use them for Pluto. However, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident, or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol. And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when in his fright at my violence he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I no longer knew myself. My original soul seemed, at once, to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut out one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returning with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty but it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left, as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of the creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave way to irritation. And then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives, that I am the perverseness in one of the primitive impulses of the human heart one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not, a hundred times, found himself committing a vile or a silly act for no other reason than because he knows he should not. 
Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law, merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose around its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it. If such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames, the whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire world, wealth, was swallowed up and I resigned myself henceforth to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even possible link imperfect. On the day after the fire I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of a fire, a fact which I attributed to it having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd was gathered, and many people seemed to be examining a peculiar portion of it with a very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length, reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown, through an open window, into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames, and the ammonia from the carpet carcass had then accomplished the portrait as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted for my reason, if not altogether to my conscience for the startling fact just detailed, it did not less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this weird period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, 
and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented. For another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night as I sat, half stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not soonest perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it from the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as it, I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising with me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it. But gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with an utterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endured it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree the humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait, and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity, which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from doing so, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and the horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras 
it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention, more than once, to the character of the mark of white hair, of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster, had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. O oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now, I was indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me. For a man fashioned in the image of the high god, so much of insufferable woe, alas, neither by day nor by night knew the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face, and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most unusual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand in the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed in my mind, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was stopped by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more demonical, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot, without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered into my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it into the well in the yard, about packing it in a box, as if merchandise, with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I was determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted, its walls very loosely constructed, and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which, 
The dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection, caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall I propped it in their position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. I did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster, in terror, had fled the premises forever, I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future as secure. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came, very unexpectedly, into the house and proceeded again to make a rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatsoever. The officers made me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked through the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word, by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the more frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily. 
with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one loud, long, and continuous scream utterly anomalous and inhuman. A howl, a wailing shriek half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with its red, extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. The Devil in the Belfry Everybody knows, in a general way, that the finest place in the world is, or alas was, the Dutch borough of Vander Votiemetis. Yet, as it lies some distance from any of the main roads, being in a somewhat out-of-the-way situation, there are perhaps very few of my readers who have ever paid it a visit. For the benefit of those who have not, therefore, it will be only proper that I should enter into some other account of it. And this is indeed the most necessary as with the hope of enlisting public sympathy on behalf of the inhabitants. I decide here to give a history of the calamitous events which have so lately occurred within its limits. No one who knows me will doubt that the duty thus self-imposed will be executed to the best of my ability and with all that rigid impartiality, all that cautious examination into facts and diligent collation of authorities which should ever distinguish him who aspires to the title of historian. By the united aid of medals, manuscripts, and inscriptions, I am able to say positively that the borough of Vondervotiamidis has existed from its origin in precisely the same condition which it at present preserves. Of the date of this origin, however, I grieve that I can only speak with that species of indefinite definiteness which mathematicians are at times forced to put up with in certain algebraic formulae. The date, I may thus say, in regard to the remoteness of its antiquity, cannot be less than any assignable quantity whatsoever. Touching the derivation of the name Vonder Votiamidis, I confess myself with sorrow equally at the fault. Among a multitude of opinions upon this delicate point, some acute, some learned, some sufficiently the reverse. I am able to select nothing which ought to be considered satisfactory. Perhaps the idea of Grodswig, nearly coincident with the Kraut Aplenty, is to be cautiously preferred. It runs, Vonder Votiamitis, Vonder, Lege Donder, Votiamitis, Quasi und Blitzis, Blitzis Absol pro Blitzen. 
This derivative, to say the truth, is still countenanced by some traces of the electric fluid event evident on the summit of the steeple of the House of the Town Council. I do not choose, however, to commit myself on a theme of such importance and must refer the reader to serious of information to the Otacantulier de Rubis Pretervetius of Dudrugats. See also Blunderbuzzard de Derivation Bus. Gothic edit, red and black character, catchword, and no cipher, wherein consult also marginal notes in the autograph of Stuffund Puff, and with the sub-commentaries of Grunt und Guzzle. Notwithstanding the obscurity which thus envelops the date of the foundation of Vanter Votiamitis and the derivation of its name, there can be no doubt, as I said before, that it has always existed as we find it at this epoch. The oldest man in the borough can remember not the slightest difference in the appearance of any portion of it, and indeed, the very suggestion of such a possibility is considered an insult. The side of the village was in a perfectly circular valley, about a quarter of a mile in circumference, and entirely surrounded by gentle hills, over whose summit the people have never yet ventured to pass. For this they assign the very good reason that they do not believe there is anything at all on the other side. Round the skirts of the valley, which is quite level and paved throughout with flat tiles, extends a continuous row of sixty little houses. These, having their backs on the hills, must look, of course, to the center of the plain, which is just sixty yards from the front door of each dwelling. Every person has a small garden before it with a circular path, a sundial, and twenty-four cabbages. The buildings themselves are so precisely alike that one can in no manner be distinguished from the other. Owing to the vast antiquity of the style of architecture is somewhat odd, but it is not for that reason the less likely strikingly picturesque. They are fashioned of hard-burned little bricks red with black ends so that the walls look like a chessboard upon a great scale. The gables are turned to the front and there are cornices as big as all the rest of the house over the eaves and over the main doors. The windows are narrow and deep with very tiny panes and a great deal of sash. On the roof is a vast quantity of tiles with long curly ears. The woodwork throughout is of dark hue and there is much carving about it, but with a trifling variety of pattern for time out of mind the carvers of Vander Vatiamitis have never been able to carve more than two objects, a timepiece and a cabbage. But these they do exceedingly well and intersperse them with singular ingenuity wherever they find room for the chisel. The dwellings are as much alike inside and as out, and the furniture is all upon one plan. The floors are of square tiles, the chairs and tables are black looking wood with thin crooked legs and puppy feet. The mantelpieces are wide and high and have not only timepieces and cabbages sculptured over the front, but a real timepiece, which makes a prodigious ticking on the top of the middle, with a flower pot containing a cabbage standing on each extremity by way of an outrider. Between each cabbage and the timepiece again is a little Chinaman having a large stomach with a great round hole in it through which is seen the dial plate of a watch. The fireplaces are large and deep, with fierce, crooked-looking fire dogs. 
There is constantly a rousing fire and a huge pot over it, full of sauerkraut and pork to which the good woman of the house is always busy in attending. She is a fat little old lady with blue eyes and a red face, wears a huge cap like a sugar loaf, ornamented with purple and yellow ribbons. Her dress is of orange-colored linsey woolsey, made very full behind and very short in the waist, and indeed very short in other respects, not reaching below the middle of her leg. This is somewhat thick, and so are her ankles, but she has a fine pair of green stockings to cover them. Her shoes of pink leather are fastened each with a bunch of yellow ribbons puckered up in the shape of a cabbage. In her left hand, she has a little, heavy Dutch watch. In her right, she wields a ladle for the sauerkraut and pork. By her side, there stands a fat tabby cat with a gilt toy repeater tied to its tail, which the boys have there fastened by the way of a quiz. The boys themselves are, all three of them, in the garden attending the pig. They are each two feet in height. They have three cornered cocked hats, purple waistcoats reaching down to their thighs, buckskin knee breeches, red stockings, heavy shoes with big silver buckles, long surd-out coats with large buttons of mother of pearl. Each, too, has a pipe in his mouth and a little dumpy watch in his right hand. He takes a puff and a look, and then a look and a puff. The pig, which is corpulent and lazy, is occupied now in picking up the stray leaves that fall from the cabbages, and now in giving a kick behind at the gilt repeater, with the urchins have also tied to his tail in order to make him look as handsome as the cat. Right at the front door, in a high-backed leather-bottomed armchair with crooked legs and puppy feet-like tables, is seated the old man of the house himself. He is an exceedingly puffy little old gentleman with big circular eyes and a huge double chin. His dress resembles that of the boys, and I need say nothing further about it. All the difference is that his pipe is somewhat bigger than theirs and he can make a greater smoke. Like them, he has a watch, but he carries his watch in his pocket. To tell the truth, he has something of more importance than a watch to attend to, and what that is I shall presently explain. He sits with his right leg upon his left knee, wears a grave countenance and always keeps one of his eyes at least resolutely bent upon a certain remarkable object in the center of the plane. This object is situated in the steeple of the house of the town council. The town council are all very little, round, oily, intelligent men with big saucer eyes and fat double chins and have their coats much longer and their shoe buckles much bigger than the ordinary inhabitants of Vondervotimus. Since my sojourn in the borough, they have had several special meetings and have adopted these three important regulations. That it is wrong to alter the good old course of things. That there is nothing tolerable out of Vondervotimitis. And that we will stick by our clocks and our cabbages. Above the session room of the council is the steeple and in the steeple is the belfry, where exists, and has existed time out of mind, the pride and wonder of the village, the great clock of the borough of Vondervotiamitis. And this is the object to which the eyes of the old gentlemen are turned who sit in the leather-bottomed armchairs. The great clock has seven faces, one in each of the seven sides of the steeple, so that it can be readily seen from all quarters. 
Its faces are large and white, and its hands heavy and black. There is a belfry man whose sole duty is to attend to it, but this duty is the most perfect of sinecures. For the clock of Vander Votiamidis was never yet known to have anything to do with it. Until lately, the bare supposition of such a thing was considered heretical. From the remotest period of antiquity to which the archives have referenced, the hours have been regularly struck by the big bell, and indeed, the case was just the same with all the other clocks and watches in the borough. Never was such a place for keeping the true time when the larger clapper thought it proper to say twelve o'clock. All its obedient followers opened their throats simultaneously and responded like a very echo. In short, the good burghers were fond of their sauerkraut, and then they were proud of their clocks. All people who hold sinecure offices are held in more or less respect, and as the belfry, man of the Vonder Votiamitis, has the most perfect of sinecures. He is the most perfectly respected of any man in the world. He is the chief dignitary of the borough, and the very pigs look upon to him with a sentiment of reverence. His coattail is very far longer, his pipe, his shoe buckles, his eyes, and his stomach very far bigger than those of any other gentleman in the village, and as to his chin, it is not only double, but triple. I have this painted the happy estate of Vonder Votiamitis, alas that so fair a picture should ever experience a reverse. There has been a saying among the wisest inhabitants that no good can come from over the hills, and it really seemed that the worlds had in them something of the spirit of prophecy. It was five minutes past noon on the day before yesterday when there appeared a very odd-looking object on the summit of the ridge of the east. Such an occurrence, of course, attracted universal attention, and every little old gentleman who sat in a leather-bottomed armchair turned one of his eyes with a stare of dismay upon the phenomenon, still keeping the other upon the clock in the steeple. By the time that it was only three minutes to noon, the droll object in question was perceived to be a very diminutive, foreign-looking young man. He descended the hills at a great rate so that everybody had a good look at him. He was really the most finicky little personage that had ever been seen in Vonder Votiamitis. His countenance was of a dark snuff color, and he had long, hooked nose, pea eyes, a wide mouth, and an excellent set of teeth which later he seemed anxious of displaying as he was grinning from ear to ear. What the mustachios and whiskers, there was none of the rest of his face to be seen. His head was uncovered, and his hair neatly done up in papalotes. His dress was a tight-fitting, swallow-tailed black coat from one of those pockets dangled a vast length of white handkerchief. Black, kersimir neat breeches black stockings, and stumpy-looking pumps, with huge bunches of black satin ribbon for bows. Under one arm he carried a huge chope de bras, and under the other a fiddle nearly five times as big as himself. In his left hand was a gold snuff box from which he capered down the hill, cutting all manner of fantastic steps. He took snuff incessantly with an air of a great possibility of satisfaction. God bless me, here was a sight for the honest burghers of Vonder Votiamitis. 
To speak plainly, the fellow had, in spite of his grinning, an audacious and sinister kind of face, and as he curveted right into the village, the old stumpy appearance of his pumps excited no little suspicion, and many a burger who beheld him that day would have given a trifle for a peep beneath the white cambric handkerchief which hung so obtrusively from the pocket of his swallow-tailed coat. But that mainly occasioned the righteous indignation was that the scoundrelly popinjay, while he cut a fandango here and a whirligig here, did not seem to have the remotest idea in the world of such a thing as keeping time in his steps. The good people of the borough had scarcely a chance, however, to get their eyes thoroughly open, when, just as it wanted half a minute of noon, the rascal bounced, as I say, right into the midst of them. Gave a chasse here and a balance there, and then, after a pirouette and a poste de feu, Pigeon winged himself right up into the belfry of the house of the town council, where the wonder-stricken belfry man sat smoking in a state of dignity and dismay. But the little chap seized him at once by the nose, gave it a swing and a pull, clapped the big chauvet de bras upon his head, knocked it down over his eyes and mouth, and then, lifting up the big fiddle, beat him with it so long and so soundly that, what with the belfry man being so fat and the fiddle being so hollow, you would have sworn that there was a regiment of double bass drummers all beating the devil's tattoo up in the belfry of the steeple of Vonder Votimitis. There is no knowing of what desperate act of vengeance this unprincipled attack might have aroused the inhabitants, but for the important fact that it now wanted only half a second of noon. The bell was about to strike, and it was a matter of absolute and preeminent necessity that everybody should look well at his watch. It was evident, however, that just at this moment, the fellow in the steeple was doing something that he had no business to do with the clock. But as it now began to strike, nobody had any time to attend to his maneuvers, for they had all to count the strokes of the bell as it sounded. One, said the clock. Vaughn, echoed every old gentleman in every leather-bottomed armchair in von der Vodiumidus. Vaughn, said his watch also. Vaughn said the watch of his brow, and Vaughn said the watches of the boys, and the little gilt repeaters on the tails of the cat and pig. Two, continued the big bell, and two, repeated all the repeaters. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, said the bell. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, answered the others. Eleven, said the big one. Eleven, assented the little ones. Twelve, said the bell. Twelve. They replied, perfectly satisfied and dropping their voices. Undulf it is, said the old little gentleman, putting up their watches. But the big bell had not finished with them yet. Thirteen, he said. De Tuffle, gasped the little old gentleman, turning pale, dropping their pipes, and putting down all their right legs from over their left knees. De Tuffle, groaned them. Thirteen, thirteen. My gut, it is thirteen o'clock. Why attempt to describe the terrible scene which ensued? All Vonder Vodiumidis flew at once into a lamentable state of uproar. What is come to mine pelly? roared all the boys. I've been angry for an hour. What is come to mine kraut? screamed all the vrows. It has been done to rags for this hour. 
what is comed to mine pipe? Swore all the little old gentlemen, Donder and Blitzen. It has been smoked out this hour. And they filled them up again in a great rage, and sinking back into their armchairs, puffed away so fast and so fiercely that the whole valley was immediately filled with impenetrable smoke. Meantime, the cabbages all turned very red in the face, and it seemed as if Old Nick himself had taken possession of everything in the shape of a timepiece. The clocks carved upon the furniture took to dancing as if bewitched, while those upon the mantelpieces could scarcely contain themselves with fury and kept such a continual striking of thirteen and such a frisking and wriggling of their pendulums as was really horrible to see. But, worse than all, neither the cats nor the pigs could put up any longer with the behavior of the little repeaters tied to their tails, and resented it by scampering all over the place, scratching and poking, and squeaking and screeching, and caterwauling and squalling, and flying into the faces and running over the petticoats of the people, and creating altogether the most abominable din and confusion which it possible for a reasonable person to conceive. And to make matters still more distressing, the rascally little scrape grace in the steeple was evidently exerting himself to the utmost every now and then one might catch a glimpse of the scoundrel through the smoke. There he sat in the belfry, upon the belfry man, who was lying flat upon his back. In his teeth the villain held the bell rope, which he kept jerking about with his head, raising such a clatter that my ears rang again even to think of it. On his lap lay the big fiddle at which he was scraping, out of all time and tune with both hands making a great show, the nincompoop, of playing Judy O'Flanagan and Patty O'Rafferty. Affairs being thus miserably situated, I left the place in disgust and now appeal to aid for all lovers of correct time and fine kraut. Let us proceed in a body to the borough and restore the ancient order of things in Vonder Vodiumitis by ejecting that little fellow from the steeple. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, tapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more. "'Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, "'and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. "'Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, "'from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrowful the lost Lenore, "'for rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels named Lenore, "'nameless here forevermore.' And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating. "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is it, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. The silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token. 
and the only word they spoke was the whispered word Lenore. This I whispered, and Echo murmured back the word Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon I heard again a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then where Veratus and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped, or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched, and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenanced war, though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim, an ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, evermore, much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour, nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, in the morning he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Evermore, startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken. Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master who, unmerciful disaster, followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then opened the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy into fancy, thinking that this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat, engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned inside my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease, reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er. But whose velvet violet lining with lamplight gloated o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed with an unseen censer, Swung by angels who faint footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempest sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. 
desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted on this home by horror haunted tell me truly i implore is there is there bomb in gilead tell me tell me i implore quoth the raven nevermore prophet said i thing of evil prophet still if bird or devil by that heaven that bends above us by that god we both adore tell this soul with sorrow laden if within the distant aden it still clasps a sainted maiden whom the angels name lenore clasp a rare and radiant maiden who the angels name lenore quoth the raven nevermore be that word our sign of parting bird of friend i shrieked upstarting get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore and the raven never flitting still is sitting still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming and the light night o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore this has been a reading of the raven and other assorted works of edgar Allan poe narration by calvin lowe i hope you all enjoyed